Thanks, Erin. You notice she didn't uh, put on the slide who wrote that song, right? You know why? Because she did. And, uh, and I think we need to, let's sing it again at the end of the service. You guys be ready for that? Um, just over a week ago, as Phil and I were making our way back from Pakistan, we had, uh, we'd been rooted through JFK in New York, and coming off of a flight from Dubai of 14 hours, um, we then had, uh, we had to deal with Homeland Security for two hours at JFK, so we got on a, a commuter flight from JFK to Toronto, and I think we both looked more like we belonged in the Walking Dead series than, you know, missionary trip returnees. But as we got on that airplane, um, I, I sat right beside a young um, Jewish Orthodox man. Uh, he and his brother and his brother's wife behind us were on their way to Toronto for our wedding. And I, I was, you know, even if I wasn't sleeping, I, I tried to pretend to be asleep. I just didn't want to have any conversation at all. But I could tell this guy just kept waiting <laughs> until he saw my eyes flicker. And then he, he was just really outgoing and really friendly. So he said, um, can I ask you a question? And we had chatted a little bit. You know, I knew where they were going, where he was from, and he was Orthodox and practicing and all of that. And he, I mean, they were deck, decked out. He had the yarmulke on, and he had his hat, hat box up above, and the coat, and just, just everything was perfect. It was just, you know, a typical modern New York young Orthodox Jewish guy. So he said, um, "You're you're kind of like a rabbi, right?" I said. Yeah. <laughs> in, in your world, I'm, I'm kind of like a rabbi. He says, can, can I ask you a random question? I said, oh, well, th okay, this could be an interesting conversation. So I said, yeah, sure. He says, where does the Easter bunny come from? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, this, this isn't going to be a real deep conversation here. <laughs> I said, I have no idea. I, I think Hallmark. I'm not sure. I, I think it came from Hallmark. And he said, well, I just figured you might know that because, uh, you know, that's kind of, you're, you're that sort of a rabbi guy. So as I was thinking about that, I, I remembered several years ago, um, Annabeth and I were in Jerusalem. And by the Western Wall in Jerusalem, which is the, the really familiar uh, picture that you see people are there praying, um, if, if you face the wall and then go left, there is um, in behind uh, partitions um, through which no women are ever allowed to, to proceed. There, there is a gathering of the most interesting men that, that you might find in the world. They, they are the, the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox rabbis who are teaching their disciples. And we, the, the guys in our group, went inside, and you could, I mean, you had to be just very respectful of what they were doing. You had to have your head covered and all that sort of thing. But as we went in there, um, there were just scores of Orthodox um, Jewish men who were praying. And the, the, the irony that I noticed was that there was one person in particular, he had a prayer shawl over his head, and he was, he was praying like, like they do, like this. And he was really energetic in his praying, and it was out loud, and he's bobbing like this. All of a sudden, his cell phone rang. And I'm thinking, where are we? He takes his cell phone out of his pocket, and he does some business, puts his cell phone back in his pocket, and he's back to praying. <laughs> so that, to me, was a good picture of orthodoxy mixed with modernity. And uh, there we were. But farther down was the most interesting part of this whole area because it was where the rabbis met with their disciples. And it was just, I mean, we could have been transported back to the times of Jesus 
because there were all these young men who were just voracious in their questions and in their interest to learn from their rabbis. And the rabbis would actually challenge each other. They would hear what the other was teaching, and they would call correction, or they would say, that's not what such and such a rabbi wrote in such and such a tractate or, or whatever it was. But as I thought about that young man and his notion that there are people in his life that are rabbi sorts of people that you can ask questions of, um, these young men, even today, still practicing their, their art, orthodox faith with, with real sincerity, um, it, it is, it's a good setting for understanding the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 arises in that very kind of a setting. So Jesus' disciples are viewing him as their rabbi. He is their teacher. He is the one that they long to learn from, that they long to soak um, all of his knowledge into their own hearts and minds. So in Luke chapter 11, um, part of that process is what we come across. So if you would like to open your Bibles there, let me just use that as a way to introduce what we're going to do for this, this Lenten study about the Lord's Prayer. In Luke chapter 11, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation." Teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. You're our rabbi. You are our master. You are our leader. Teach us to pray. And as we look at this prayer, um, we hear Jesus saying very clearly to his disciples, when you pray, pray this. Now, those of you who have been in circle groups already have been thinking with me about the Lord's Prayer and in two instances in the ministry of Jesus, he gave them virtually the identical prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and then at a totally different time when he's privately with his disciples, Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer as we know it, or the Our Father that many of us grew up with. He begins by saying to them, When you pray, say. When you pray, say. So he doesn't give them instruction on how to formulate a prayer. He doesn't say, here's an example of a prayer, here's the model of a prayer. He says, when you pray, pray this. And so as we now, 2,000-some years later, wonder about praying, wonder about how it is that we engage God in conversation, how it is that we engage God in contemplation and meditation and, and hearing from him, the, the words of Jesus, I think, need to ring down through the centuries. And Jesus is really wanting to say to us, when you pray, pray this. And I have, over the last number of years, just delighted in sort of a, a reacquaintance with the Lord's Prayer. Because I, I grew up, as many of us did, um, praying the Lord's Prayer as a rote prayer. I, I just It spun off my lips as we prayed it every morning in school. I, I did not value the fact that the school cared to pray the Lord's Prayer and how times have changed, um, not only in school but in government and all the rest. And the Lord's Prayer has been marginalized. Um, and so I didn't appreciate it as, as I ought to have. 
but I, I've come to be reacquainted with it, and I've come to agree with Jim Packer, who in his book, I Want to Be a Christian, says every prayer of every Christian should in some way or another be the praying of the Lord's Prayer. Should be the praying of the Lord's Prayer. And now, as, as I get that into my head and my heart as a habit, more often than not, finally, when someone asks me to pray with him, to pray with her, I, I will ask myself, what part of the Lord's Prayer is it that we need to pray here? What part of the Lord's Prayer is about what this person is, is concerned with? What part of the Lord's Prayer would speak to the concern that they have, the worries that they have, the challenges, opportunities? And so what I want to do this Lenten series is commend to you, as I have in the circle groups, the praying of the Lord's Prayer. Not just as an example of a prayer, but actually quite methodically to say, when we pray, let's pray the way Jesus told us we ought to pray. Now, the, the form of the Lord's Prayer that we pray um, will vary. And I, I grew up, as again many of you did, with that rather formal, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then there's a little divergence. Do we pray debts or trespasses? We're not sure. So some will say trespasses and some will say debts. And it takes the trespasses people just a little longer to get to the end of the prayer. But we finally get to, for thine is the power of the kingdom, the, the kingdom, the power of the glory forever and ever. Amen. The prayer that's on, on the screen just now um, is a faithful translation to the, the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples and the prayer that he taught in, on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the part of the prayer that says, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, actually is not part of what Jesus told them to pray, which is a dreadful thing for me to have to tell you. Because if you pray the Lord's Prayer without finishing with that incredible crescendo, it sort of falls flat, right? And, you know, especially if you're singing the old version of the Lord's Prayer and you're a little operatic in your approach to things. I mean, imagine not being able to get to the part for thine, all that stuff. You know, he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. That's it. So what happened was that as the Lord's Prayer got to be in liturgical use, as the church in the early centuries embraced this prayer, they not only took the, the Matthew version of the prayer, which included our Father in heaven, but they brought in that little piece of, of liturgy, that little piece of, of worship that said, this prayer being true, let's end it by declaring that the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to God forever. So there is absolutely nothing wrong with it, but it, it came later um, into manuscripts as, as the the decades and, and centuries went on. So the prayer that is before you here is, is a, basically a combination of the two prayers and the tradition of the prayers, but in, in language that has finally become for us um, roll-off-the-tongue kind of language. And it's, boy, it's hard to shake the King James prayer. But if a new generation is going to learn the Lord's Prayer, I think it's worth trying to change the, the language of it so that it means something. Um, because what, what does a, a child understand, hallowed be thy name, to mean? Um, but may your name be kept holy. Then we can talk about that. What does it mean that God's name should be kept holy? Um, and those sorts of things. So here's the prayer, and, and I'll keep it before you, and uh, we'll, we'll pray it together as, as we work our way through this study. Now, it's Lent. 
And Lent is, is always a wonderful season uh, for us to practice our spiritual disciplines, for us to um, live sincerely into the, the truth of what we believe, uh, who Jesus is, why he came to pr- prepare ourselves for the glory of Resurrection Sunday. And what I'd like to do as we consider the Lord's Prayer between now and Easter is not only to receive it for ourselves, but to pray the Lord's Prayer over Milton. And week by week, I'd like to suggest what that means. What does it mean to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer as it concerns Milton? Because what we've been doing in Matthew 6, as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, is we've been asking, what does it look like when God's future arrives in our present? Because that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's future arriving in our present. If God's future is arriving in our present, what does that mean for the town that we're living in, the town in which we are placed as a, as a faith community? If the Lord's Prayer is a kingdom prayer, how might we apply the belief that the kingdom, God's future is arriving in our present, um, is true in Milton with these ideas of the Lord's Prayer? So today, as we think about the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, say, Father... I want to encourage you this week, as you're driving, as you're walking through this town, or wherever it is that's your neighborhood, or wherever it is you work, ask yourself the question, do you see those people? Do you see that group of people there? Do you see this neighborhood here? What will it look like when God's future arrives in their present? What would the idea mean to them that they may approach God and call him their father? What would that mean to them? What would it mean to those kids? that God's future arrived in their lives in such a way that they called God their father, their, their daddy, their Abba. What's it like for them now? What would it be like if God's future arrived in their present? And then just part of the prayer by part of the prayer, I'll suggest how we can do that. And I'll return to what I've, I've just said before we get done this morning. So, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. How'd that happen? Hopefully I can remember the rest of the prayer. Give us today the food we need. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. The kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to you forever. Amen. Well, as we think about the Lord's Prayer, and as we think about it particularly in the Luke 11 context, Jesus says, when you pray, say, and uh, my contention is that since on two completely separate Um, occasions, Jesus said, pray this prayer, and it's it's virtually identical, that he meant that we should pray this prayer. He meant that it should be part of of the devotional vocabulary, of the intercessionary vocabulary of of a child of God. So the way that the prayer begins is with a dilemma for those that are listening. The dilemma that they have is, what is God's name? Now, I've I've put God on the screen the way uh, any current Jewish person would write the name because any faithful Jewish person today will not write or say God's name so in anything that you see that is written in scholarship um, among um, Jewish scholars they will write GD rather than put the vowel in there and they're doing that very intentionally because if, if you were sitting among the group of disciples and you were listening to Jesus and you were wondering how he would begin to pray, you'd be absolutely shocked at how he said you should begin to pray. 
Because in answer to the question that was yet unspoken, what's God's name? How do you address God? There was a very sophisticated answer. The very sophisticated answer was this. You don't call God by name. Now, that had a very fascinating history and continues to have a fascinating history in in, uh, rabbinic scholarship all the way back from the time of Moses. And even today, um, among Jewish scholars and those who practice their Jewish faith, they will talk about the explicit name of God. They will say there is an explicit name of God that cannot be uttered and should not be uttered. They're referring to what we call the tetragrammaton, um, which, is, which simply means four letters. And it's the, the designation that is given to God by God to his people through the Old Testament, which is YHWH. So YHWH um, is the origin of their thought that you shouldn't utter God's name. There are no vowels involved in Yahweh, in the YHWH. There's another Hebrew word, Adonai, which means Lord, and by taking the vowels of Adonai, and placing them between the consonants of YHWH, you get Jehovah. And so the, tradition, the Christian tradition has been to call the God of the Old Testament Jehovah by taking that tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God that he gave, putting into the middle of it this other word that means Lord, and saying, there you go, that's what we will use so that we have a way to say the name that the Hebrew Old Testament gives us for the God of the Jews. The problem for those who are wanting to follow their, their orthodoxy and, and be faithful to the myriad of laws of the Old Testament is that they are, they, they, they're going in a couple of directions at the same time. The one is a direction that says we have to avoid misusing this name. So how are we, how are we going to avoid misusing the name? Because they took the Decalogue very seriously. God said, don't misuse my name. Don't profane my name. Don't blaspheme my name. So one stream thought, well, okay, let's make sure that we don't, we don't, we don't misuse God's name. And and they took a, a particular tack. Another consequence of all of this is that this name of God that was never explicitly spoken became like magic to them. And so I have the book that uh, every Christian ought to have in their library. It's called the Essential Talmud. I'm sure it's on your list of, you know, bucket books to get before you die. But here's 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 what is said about the divine name. So it, current in Judaism, yet is this thought that there is an explicit name of God, and the explicit name of God cannot be uttered, should not be uttered, and the explicit name of God is actually a magical thing or in Kabbalistic terms, it's, it's a number kind of a thing that um, if, if you're able to burrow into it, you'll have burrowed into some pretty fascinating stuff. Now, if, if you're a conspiracy theorist, um, you'll find the Masonic movement in this. You'll find, um, you know, various other things that don't need to be brought up here. Here's what this person writes. Furthermore, we know that the four-letter name, despite its sanctity, was not the explicit name. There was a 12-letter name, a 42-letter name, and even one with 72 letters. 
These are referred to several times in the Talmud, but without explanation, and even the classic Talmudic commentators did not always understand the reference. Another work, work that I've been reading says that that's, that's not the limit of it, because in, in working the numbers of all of this, if you take the, the 72 one, there's a way to rhyme those out three times over so that you get 216 letters, and there's a tradition about there being 216 spirits of God or 216 angels or 216 demons. There's a little folklore about Solomon that when he was building the temple, he got 216 demons and he made them do the work for him. And, and so it goes off in all kinds of mythical and magical and, and um, strange sorts of ways. But you see what, what has happened in the history of Israel is that they've, they really have gone off track on this whole matter of God's name. What is God's name? Well, Jesus, you're our rabbi. Teach us to pray. What do you call God when you start to pray? Well, what Jesus said was ridiculous to them because they knew that at best you would say Adonai, Lord. And even today among Hebrew Christians, when they use the tetragrammaton of the Old Testament, they won't say Yahweh or try to articulate the, the tetragrammaton. They'll say Adonai. So even though they read YHWH, they will say Adonai, in, even in a, in a Messianic Jewish context these days. But where did all of this come from, and, and what's the problem with it? Well, the whole problem with it is what a name actually means. And that's where we need to, to land today. But let, let me show you one thing about how all of this developed in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles there, look at Leviticus and uh, chapter 24. So what do, you, what do you call God? Well, if you're listening to Jesus, you will say, you might say Adonai, which, which means Lord. But more often than that, you would say Hashem, which means the name. So if, if you were practicing your Jewish faith in the days of Jesus, when, when you prayed to God, you would probably say Hashem, which is the name, but not say any name. Part of where that all comes from is in Leviticus chapter 24. So Leviticus 24 verse 10 says, Now the son of an Israelite woman, or mother, and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Dibri the Danite. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, Anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. And all the way through to verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. Anyone who misuses the name of the Lord is to be put to death. Anyone who profanes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. So in the rabbinic tradition, the question was asked, how can we be sure 
that we never blaspheme this name. And by the way, this name must be incredibly powerful if, if it has to be put under such um, guard and, and concern. So the magic thing is beginning to arise, but also the fear. And how do you avoid blaspheming God's name? So if you fast forward um, by hundreds and hundreds of years to the time just before Christ, 300, 200 um, before Christ, um, there was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And when the translation was made from Hebrew into Greek in Leviticus 24, whereas in the Hebrew it says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. In the Greek, it says, anyone who utters the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Anyone who pronounces the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And you realize then that something has happened between the concern not to blaspheme God's name that has been just a fastidious um, attempt to say, how, how can you be sure you never mis misuse God's name? There's only one way to be sure. Don't ever say it. Right? Don't, if you don't say it, you're not going to blaspheme it. In that, they missed a whole ethic because it was not words that were under concern. It was the way that we properly had custody of God's name. That was what God was concerned about, about his name being misused or profaned or, uh, or blasphemed. But in, in, in that legalistic tradition, they said, okay, this name, whether it's four names, four letters, or 72, or whatever it is, this name that is so, so special, um, the, the best way not to misuse it is never to actually speak God's name. So in the tradition of Israel, only once a year, the high priest spoke God's explicit name, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But as the high priest spoke God's name, it was spoken ten times on the Day of Atonement. That was the only time in the whole year of, of the, the worship of Israel that it was spoken. The priests, with their singing and instruments, drowned out the sound of the high priest, so no one could hear the name that was being spoken. So now it's, it, it's for us both fascinating and, and, and also baffling, isn't it, to, to think of that whole tradition. I mean, what do you call God? Oh, that is a very difficult question. Well, why is it a difficult question? Well, because um, the name that God gave himself at the very beginning was a different kind of a name. It wasn't a name that you could actually utter or that we know how to utter. And this name of God, as, as we've you know, gone through all of these iterations, this name of God, we've, we've understood is a very, it's a very holy thing. It's a, it's a very sacred and magical and mystical thing that can be expanded and understood. Uh, and this name is also something that we're afraid about, so we, we don't use it carelessly. Well, the problem with all of that is that when we ask the question, what's in a name, in the ancient Near East, the answer was very, very simple. A person's name disclosed that person's character. A person's name disclosed that person's disposition. So what is this person like? How is this person likely to be disposed towards me? And the person's name will tell me something about that. A person's name disclosed the person's intention. So what, what is this person going to do as far as I'm concerned? And all of those were bundled into the name of a person. And I've mentioned to you before how many of the stories of the Bible are wrapped up in the meaning of names. How that people's names had to be changed because God intended their character to change. Because God intended their disposition to change. He intended their intentions to change. 
And so they needed a better name than the one that they started out with. Well, if you're praying to God and you have this understanding that whatever God's name is, that's how you will know what his character is. That's how you know what his disposition will be. That's how you will know what his intentions are. If you don't know his name, where do you go with that? I mean, if if his name is is wrapped up in this shroud of mystery and, and fear... And by the time Jesus is teaching his disciples, that's exactly what had happened to God's name. So they are listening. Their their ears are just trained to hear their master. And he says, when you pray, here's the name that you may call God. It's Father. Now, that was blasphemy to the religious teachers and rulers that were nearby. That was blasphemy. Who does this man think he is? Who does this man think he is that he can call God anything let alone Father. Now, as we go into the Old Testament, and let me, let me give you a, a quick little tour on names that God does give to us for himself. Um, so Yahweh is that tetragrammaton, and many times through the Old Testament, it's attached to another name that basically speaks to the character, the disposition, and the intention of the God who has given his covenant name to his covenant people. And the baffling thing about this is that that tetragrammaton, the YHWH or sometimes YHVH, God actually said, "This I'm giving you my name. This is my covenant name that you will know me by. So God deliberately giving this name, which, which is a profound name because what does it mean? It, it, it means something like the, the always existing one or the one who is the source and being, the one who needs nothing else. But God says, this is my name. I'm going to give you my name. And then several times by God's own gift to Israel or by um, those who speak for him, that name, the Tetragrammaton, is attached to something else. So in Genesis 2 verse 4, it says Yahweh Elohim. And Elohim is, is a name that, that means the, the, the God who, who made things. It's Genesis 1, Elohim is the name that God has for himself when he says, let's make man. So this covenant God is, is the creator God, and, and we learn that by the Yahweh-Elohim um, combination there. Um, Yahweh-Elohai in Matthew or um, Psalm 13 is a term that means this covenant God is my God, David says that, that um, Yahweh, the covenant God, is Elohai, is, is my God. In Genesis 14, verse 22, it's Yahweh El Elyon, and Yahweh El Elyon is the Lord Most High, and it's, it's saying this, this covenant God, whose name you have, is the Most High God. And in, in, a, in a day of Canaanite gods that were all over the place, um, this God is the God who's above all gods. There's no God that compares to him whatsoever. In Genesis 22, verse 14, Yahweh Yireh, and uh, that's putting attached to the, to the covenant name, um, that this is the God who sees. So it's God who's speaking to Hagar, and he says, um, I see you, I see you. And again, here you, you begin to, to get this about the importance of the name. And God's giving his name. He says, my, I'm giving you my covenant name. Now you... You've got some concerns over this because the covenant's not going to get tracked through your son. 
but I am a covenant God. I'm, I'm telling you my covenant name, and I'm telling you that I see you. And today, again, as we meditate on God's names, how many people there are in the world who need to hear God say to them, I am your covenant God, and I see you. You think nobody sees you. You think I've forgotten all about you, but I see you. God's character is that he's not distanced. He's not removed. Um, God's disposition is that he's looking, and his intentions are that he's going to care for those that he's, he's watching over. So again, how troubling it is that in the whole history of a religion, his name is turned into magic or his name is avoided when God is saying, I'm, I'm telling you my name. And I'm expanding my name time after time. This one, um, Yahweh Makadishkem. See, I've been to India and I can say long words now, which is, which is really brilliant. Um, it, it means the Lord your sanctifier. What's God's character? Well, God is a holy God. Well, what chance is there then for me in, in a relationship with him? Well, God's disposition towards me is that he's a sanctifier. He's a person who makes other people holy. What are his intentions? His intentions are to make me holy. That he's going to be at work to sanctify me, um, to make me more like him on, a, on, an, on an ongoing basis in my life. Exodus 17, verse 15, um, is uh, Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord, my banner, the Lord, um, my victor, the Lord, my conqueror. And uh, here again, I mean, God is saying, I'm your covenant God, but as you go to battle... I'm going to be your banner. I'm going to be your strength. Today, as, as we think about our relationship with our covenant God, he says, I'm, I'll be your banner. What are you afraid of? What, what's, what's the thing that's terrifying you? What's the thing that's striking fear into your soul? Well, I'll be your banner. Moses says, I'm not going to go if you won't come with me. And God says, I'm there. So again, we, we see God's character, God's disposition, God's intentions all wrapped up in the name that he gives to himself. In Isaiah 17, verse 6, um, it's Yahweh Elohe Yisrael, which basically is saying, this God is the God of Israel. He's, he's the God that Israel can say, we know this God, he is our God, he is the God with whom we have a covenant relationship. We can say today, this God, this covenant God, who has come to us in the person of his son Jesus, who has come again to stay with us in the person of his Holy Spirit, this is our God. We know him, he knows us. Psalm 95, verse 6, um, is Yahweh Osenu, and in that, um, we, it's God our maker. In Jeremiah 23, verse 6, Yahweh Sikenu um, is the Lord our righteousness. And um, what, what do we need? We need a God who's in a covenant relationship with us who actually is our righteousness. It's, it's a judicial, legal kind of a term where we say, how, how can we stand as sinful people? How can we stand before God? Well, God says, I myself am your righteousness. And Christ became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in, in the new covenant. We're told about that. Yahweh Svaut um, is uh, the term the Lord of hosts it's the most prevalent um, compound name of Jehovah in, in the whole Old Testament. And it means the Lord of armies. Um, so, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. There, there's more of us than there are of them. Where? Open his eyes, Lord. And the servant opens his eyes and he sees the host of the Lord, the, the armies of God. Um, 
history and, and mission history is replete with stories um, of angelic hosts that come to the aid of, of believers because God is a God of armies. God is the Lord of hosts. And this one, as I say, is the most uh, frequently used compound name of, of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh, Roi, is the Lord is my shepherd. What's God like? Well, David says, what God is showing to me is that he's like a shepherd, and I'm a shepherd, and I know what that means. What's the character of a shepherd? Well, if you're a good shepherd, you give your life for your sheep. If you're a good shepherd, you worry about the last one that hasn't come home, that hasn't come into the pen. Um, what are the intentions of a shepherd? The, the intentions of the shepherd are to lead his sheep in green pastures by still waters um, to care for them. And today it could well be that for one or more of us, the, the name that God needs to whisper into our ears is that I'm your shepherd. Um, do, you, do you need guidance? Do you, need, do, you, do you maybe need a little correction because you're off on, on the wrong track, off on the wrong uh, path? Yahweh Rafecha is the Lord, your healer. And again, we in uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, we celebrate this fourfold gospel that says Christ is our healer. And uh, he bore our iniquities. He, he took our infirmities in his body on the tree. And as God's future arrives, many times God's future arrives with, with a miraculous demonstration or with healing. And particularly... In, in the ways and places where God is advancing his kingdom, where, it's, where he's sort of saying, if you people don't hurry up, I'm just going to do these things myself. We see miracles happening all over the place, dreams, visions, healings. And it's God who's saying, when my future arrives in your present, nobody's going to be sick, so I'll give you a little foretaste of that. And we're, we're people who live in the middle. Um, we're not sure, will God heal or not? Well, we'll just ask him. And sometimes he will, and sometimes he won't. But, but it's not up to us to, to, to go through all kinds of theological gymnastics. It's to say, well, one of the ways that God discloses himself to us is that he says he's our healer. So let's ask him to heal us. If he doesn't, okay, we'll wait for the final coming of his kingdom when we'll be healed anyway. But in the meantime, we can ask him confidently for, for the healing that he has. Judges 6.24, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is our peace. And Shalom is that gorgeous Hebrew concept of, of deep well-being. And our covenant God says, I want to bring to you shalom. I want you to have that deep sense of, of well-being in, in your life and in your community. Psalm 19, uh, verse 14, is Yahweh suriv gwali, um, and that combination means the Lord is our redeemer. He's, he's the one who, who purchased us. And what's his character? His character is to say, I don't I don't like that you're in the territory or in the ownership of, of the dark Lord. Um, what's my disposition? My disposition is to do something about that. What do I intend to do? I intend to redeem you. I intend to buy you back. And in the person of Jesus, that's, that's precisely what he did. Yahweh Sali in Psalm 18 um, is that the Lord is our rock. Uh, David said that sort of a thing a lot. He's, he's my rock. He's my fortress. And many times, that's, that's the experience we need of God. We need to know that he's the one that we can take refuge in. For David, it was because Saul was trying to kill him. For us, it's because of the, just the, the twists and turns of life that sometimes we just feel that we're battered and bruised and blown around. And we want to say, Lord, you're my rock. You're, you're the, the only solid thing 
that I can hide behind or that I can take refuge in. And God says, yeah, that's, that's who I am and that's how I want to be known by you. So that, that's a, a quick little travel through the Old Testament where we see that God was very intentional about disclosing his name. He wanted Israel to know that his, his covenant name was theirs. He, had, he gave them this treasure, this treasure of a name. And in the, in the strange machinations of, of their theology and practice, they said, well, okay, um, if it's so special and so holy, we better not ever use it. If it's so special or so holy, hmm, let's, let's, let's find the magic in it. And in God in heaven must have been going, what? What are you doing? I gave you my name, and I gave you all of these compound names that tell you who I am in my character, what I'm disposed like, what, what I'm likely to, to do, and what I actually intend to do in your community, in your community, and in, in your history. So into that speaks Jesus when he says to his disciples, as he has on the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, say, and everybody listens because they want to know well, what is God's name, because they know that God's name is his character, his disposition, and his intentions. And Jesus says, here's God's name. It's Father. I, I don't know how to, to quicken in our hearts and minds the power of this, except to just try to put on the table this, this incredible contradiction for those who are listening to Jesus. Because what, Je what, what God has intended, they've missed. For millennia, they've missed the whole thing. And they've said, well, this name is unutterable. Nobody should say the name. They should just say, well, the name or Lord. But nobody should say this explicit name. And Jesus says, do you want to know what God's name is? It's Father. Now, here's, here's the irony. They were saying that this name of God was so sacred that it was unutterable. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what his name is. It's the most easily uttered word in the Aramaic language. You're saying it can't be uttered? You're saying it has 72 letters, maybe 216 letters? I'll tell you what it is. It's Abba. Can you say Abba? And Jesus says, that's God's name. It doesn't have 72 letters. It's not magic. It's not something to be afraid of. It is the disclosure of his character, his disposition, and his intention. So dig into that. How is Abba a disclosure of God's character? How is Abba a disclosure of God's intentions? How is Abba a disclosure of uh, God's disposition? Jesus says, this is this, unpack this, and you will know who it is that you're talking to. And Jesus himself, when he is praying, he prays, Abba, Father. He's prays in Aramaic, he's probably teaching his disciples in Aramaic, so he, it's not even the formal word Father. I mean, it, it, it honestly is daddy. And sometimes we say that and it just feels like, oh, I think that's a little, a little too familiar. Well, no, it's not. Because Jesus says the best word that you can call God is Abba. That's the best disclosure of his character, his disposition, as in, and his in intentions. So, so no wonder in our world there's an assault on the very idea of Father. Because Satan understands that Jesus has said, here's the name that you can use when you address God, Father. Well, Satan says, if I can't change that fact, I will change the meaning of the term. 
And so for many, many people in our world, the word father is a word of hurt instead of a word of kindness and gentleness and love and faithfulness as it truly ought to be. And it certainly is in the one who says to us, you, you may certainly call me your father. So as we consider this prayer through Lent, here's the start of everything. We are in a relationship with God who is the God of Isaiah 6, in whose presence there are angelic beings who never stop flying and calling out to the universe the warning, holy, holy, holy. It's, it's this God who is totally transcendent, right? It's a, just a word that means he is beyond anything that we can understand or experience. He's just beyond us. And he's the one that the angels are saying, be careful of him. Be warned of him. He is holy, 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 holy. When Isaiah experiences God in this heavenly temple, he says, I'm undone. I'm ruined. And he, he fears that he will not leave God's presence and survive. It's the same God that Jesus says, look, if you know who I am, if you know why I've come, you call that God Abba. He's, he is the transcendent God. He is the creator of the universe who had no beginning, will have no end. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's omnipotent. He's, um, he's all of those things. But Jesus says, I'll tell you a secret. You get to call him Abba because that's truly who he is to you. As we pray for people around us, um, I, I think there's a sense from this whole story that, that should empower our prayers. In Deuteronomy 6, um, as God talks to his covenant people, the ones to whom he's given his covenant name, he says, here's what's going to happen if this works. Now, it didn't work. But here's what was supposed to happen. God said, as, as you live out your relationship with me, the other nations around you are going to say this. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him. That, that was supposed to be the impact of the presence of Israel among the nations. The nations were to be in awe of the relationship that Israel had with God, and they should have been saying, we don't know any nation that has a God that is near it like their God is to Israel. And they ought to have been brought into the light of that knowledge of God. That was the purpose of the first covenant. Well, it failed, not because God failed in any way, but because their hearts were bad and they needed a new covenant, which God has brought through the work of Christ. But as I think about the neighbors around us, and maybe particularly as we think about the fact that all of this community that is growing around us um, is largely not from the background that we come from. They are largely not Judeo-Christian background people. They are people from the Muslim faith. They are uh, Islam. They are people from um, Buddhism. They are people from Hinduism. They are people from Sikhism. And they are watching more particularly than people who are nominally Christian. So they'll, on the census, they'll say, I, I'm Christian. They, the Christians aren't watching us so closely. But people who have come from other places and people who have been formed in other religions are watching us. I believe our prayer ought to be the Deuteronomy 6 prayer. That they need to look at 
what they see of our relationship with God, and they're going to have to hear something about it. It means we're going to have to have some conversations. And they ought to be saying, what other religion has a God that is like this one? Now, that's not, it's not a marketing scheme. It, it's just the truth about the relationship we actually have with our God. He's our Father. He's our Abba. And there is no other religion that comes near that kind of an experience of their God. So all around us are people who are wondering about our God. And they're not wondering academically. They're wondering practically. And I, I, I've had people from, from the Sikh religion in particular who, who will say, can your God do anything? So I, I want to have a conversation about whether uh, Christianity is true or not. They don't want to talk about whether it's true or not. They just want to know, can your God do anything? Does your God do anything? Or a Hindu person who will say, can, can your God heal? Does your God heal people? See, the, the experience of the gods of other religions is deficient. In Islam, Allah is not a loving God. And you never know whether you can please him or not. As we think about Judaism, we think about the just the frustration of the, the development of a religion that, that has become so highly complex and, and law-bound. And, and you say, well, what's God like to you? And it's, well, it's a confusing question, actually. And, and so many, many, many Jews are just saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish ethnically, but I have my own practice. Sikhism has, has a view of a God that, that there is one God who's the, who's the creator of the universe, but he's unknowable to them. It, it's, it, it's more conceptual. It's, it's the, he, he's a God who is creation as well as the, the one who, who was responsible for creation. Um, Hinduism has, has just so many gods, and they'll say, well, there's really only one God, but we've got all kinds of different names for that God. And you say, well, do you have any knowledge of, of your God at all? I mean, is there, is there any way? Buddhists will say there's, there's really no point in that conversation. Just look inside and, 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 and all of that. And, and, and you say, okay. But we know God has left a witness in our hearts. He's left a witness in our hearts to him. And the delightful thing is that when, when we allow that witness to call out to the heavens, the God that we find is a God who actually says to us, you can call me Abba. I, I sometimes have this silly little game in my head where I think about the kind of God God could be. And God could be an evil being and still God. He could be capricious. He, he could be, you know, changeable and still God. Because if he, if he created everything, he can be whatever he is, whatever he wants to be. The delightful thing is that as God discloses himself to us, there is nothing but light. That's the God who truly is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the God who says to us, I'm your Abba. That's about my character, my disposition, and my intentions. And you can take that to the bank. Somehow or other, as we are in conversation with people who are believing in other religions and following other ways, they have to catch this from us. And that means that we do live deliberately beside them. We do talk deliberately with them. And we talk about God this way. And oftentimes, it's something just like this. You're having a conversation and you say, would you mind if I pray for you? 
I, I can't actually remember ever asking someone that question and having them say no. At, at most, or at worst, um, someone might say, well, I don't, don't really believe in prayer, but if it works for you, go ahead. Oftentimes, it's, that's a really nice thank you. But it's, it's just a hook that says, because the, the God that I know and I would love you to know is a God who is my father. And he's, he's told us that we can ask him for anything at all. So if, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to ask him on your behalf. And, and if, if a person hears that a few times, and if God enters their experience, whatever they've come from, um, it, it's not going to stack up against the true God who says, here's my name. You can call me this. You can call me Abba. Because that's exactly who I am. And our desire is that the people around us, from wherever they've come from, one by one, family by family, virtually clan by clan, will say that the God of those people, whew, who else has a God who is near them every time they call? What a God that is. So, Father, we delight in calling you Abba. And we just we love the sense of Jesus announcing such incredible news to people whose heads were wrapped up in confusion and fear uh, that Jesus would just break through that cloud and say when you pray say Abba so we do our Father and we love that understanding of your character of your disposition and of your intentions and we pray that as we walk around and drive around wherever we are this week that we can think of what it will be like for your future to arrive in the present of people who are near us whose religious lives are dark uh, or futile or perhaps non-existent but who are your lost children and we pray father that as we pray for them that you will open up doors that you will present persons of peace to us all over the place who will give us entrance to their lives if it is simply by um, agreeing that it would be good for us to pray for them. So, Father, keep this in our, in our minds. Keep the delight of our relationship fresh in our hearts and minds and open our eyes to see those whom you love dearly and want to call into your family as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry, can we sing that song again?